We're continuing our series this week in the book of James. If you've got a Bible, you want to follow along, turn to, turn to James chapter 4. Uh, the title of the series is Faith That's Not Dead. Faith That's Not Dead. James argues in this book that a dead faith is no good to us. And yet, sometimes we find ourselves in a place in life or places in life where our faith is not active, it's not growing. And, uh, and so James really challenges us in this book with some tough stuff. And I'll tell you this week, this is a tough message. This is a tough message. James chapter 4 is not for the faint of heart, all right? And so if you want a, a positive, encouraging message, I mean, this positive, encouraging, but it's going to be intense. So buckle up, all right? And don't shoot the messenger, all right? I'm just preaching the word of God. I didn't write it, right? So, all right? <laughs> okay. I love you. I love you. Um, hey, uh, <clears throat> faith that's not dead resists the pull of the world. That's the message today. That's a big idea. Uh, resists the pull of the world. Most of the world goes with the pull of the world. There's no battle because they're not lined up under God. They're not even aware of God or not even trying to line their life up with what God says. But when we make a decision to follow Jesus, we make a decision to go all in with him, all of a sudden we've got a different influence in our life that's in direct opposition to the rest of the world. It just is. And so James is going to remind us today of that battle that's going on and the temptation that we have as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to still be pulled back towards the world. And so a faith that's alive, a faith that isn't dead, resists that pull, all right? Um, so, got a question for you. Have you ever been in a fight? And I don't mean an argument. I mean like a fist fight, like, you know, a fight, right? Have you ever been in a fight? Uh, some of you have been in a lot of fights. I get it. Um, I haven't been in a lot of fights, but I've been in a couple. And I promise to tell you some stories at times that may not make me look the greatest, <laughs> And uh, this is one of those days. So when I was 15, I was, uh, uh, my family moved from Salt Lake City, Utah to San Bernardino, Southern California. And uh, San Bernardino, didn't know this at the time, but as I've grown up, been around people from Southern California, San Bernardino doesn't have a great reputation in Southern California. And Southern California doesn't have a great reputation, right? But uh, San Bernardino is kind of the armpit of Southern California. It's kind of a tough town. Um, it's a tough area. So anyway, we moved there. I'm 15. I'm between my freshman and sophomore year. We moved there in the summer, and summer was fine. Uh, we lived in an apartment complex, and, you know, everything was okay. And then uh, school's coming up. I'm going to enroll in school, right, because we're living there um, through the fall, and um, so church that my dad was working in, um, all the people in the church warned my parents about the public high school that if I were to go to public high school, I would be enrolling in. They said, you don't want to send your kids there. It's a tough, dangerous school. They have fights and riots in the school. At the call in the cops, it's a big problem. There's racial issues. There's gang problems. We send our kids to the Christian school. That's where you want to send your kids. Now, my parents had kind of developed a philosophy, and this is not to 
there's different philosophies. Everybody's got my parents had a philosophy that their kids would go to public school. They felt like that was the right thing for their family. <clears throat> and uh, so when time to get enrolled in school and the day of first day of school, I found myself walking up to Cajon High School, the school that every kid in church said, you don't want to go there. It's dangerous. It's scary. Now, my mom did offer to take me up and help me get checked in and enrolled and everything. I said, Mom, it's okay, I got this. <laughs> um, if I really want a setback, I'll have you come and check me in right, uh, to my sophomore year of high school. So I was smart enough to avoid that problem. And, uh, but uh, and things were fine. I mean, I you know, got enrolled in school, everything was okay. But one day we were, uh, had PE class, we were playing volleyball. <clears throat> and I tried to recount the stories accurately, honestly. This happened to me. I don't remember all the details of this particular story. It's a little fuzzy to me, but... Um, but what I recall is we were playing volleyball, and the team I was on, maybe uh, I missed, you know, uh, uh, the ball when it came to our side. Maybe I messed up somehow. I don't really remember. But I remember that there was a guy on our team that was an athlete. He was a swimmer, and he started yelling at me. And I kind of started yelling back. I mean, uh, we were jawing back and forth. I kind of thought it was just a friendly, competitive interaction, you know. And so they were going back and forth, and I might have um, made a gesture at him. <clears throat> but anyway, he started walking towards me, I started walking towards him, and in my mind, we were going to bump chess, and we were going to give each other a hard time, and then that was going to be it. But as I got closer to him, um, all of a sudden, I kind of um, kind of had a flash uh, and things kind of went black for a minute, and then, and then I, my face went numb. And then I leaned over trying to figure out what had just happened, and I see this red stuff on the ground. I was like, I think I just got punched in the face, you know. Well, <clears throat> being completely surprised by that situation and not being the most experienced fighter, I just went to to the teacher said I got hit by a ball my nose is bleeding and I went and got the blood stopped um hope that doesn't knock me down in your view of me um but uh some people I know love to fight they're looking for a fight and uh that's probably not the best either James is gonna talk to us about our issues with fighting as we grow up and become adults we may not get into physical altercations. Hopefully, that happens less and less. It's not healthy and good if we continue to fight. But we do still fight. We get into quarrels and arguments. Even in our churches, we get into disagreements. We start fighting with other people. There's feuds that occur, right, that happen and go on sometimes for generations. And James is going to address his Christian church culture and challenge them as to why these things take place. There's three things we're going to see in this chapter that we need to resist the pull of the world in. And the first one is resist the pull of the material world, the material world that we live in. Follow along as we read the first four, uh, 10 verses of James chapter 4. Starting in verse 1, he says this, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have? So you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. 
Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask God, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. He says, listen, uh, you want the stuff in this world. You want things. You want success. You want power. You want what you want what you want, and you can't get it, and so you start getting frustrated, and then you start wanting to take it from other people. And this is why you get in fights and quarrels and disagreements. If you think about it, and you think about your life, you'll recognize that this is true a lot of times. The reason we get into it with other people is a lot of times over stuff. It's over things that we have and things that we want. He goes on to say this, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate about the spirit he placed, in, uh, he placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. <laughs> Where's your heart at? Where's your affection at? I know you're here because you have a desire for God to be in your life. You want to honor him. You want to follow him. And yet if you think about it, where is your heart really? Where are your affections really placed? What he's really dealing with here is lust. And lust comes from misdirected affection in our heart. Um, lust is the enemy of living for God. And there's a lot of things that we can lust after. The Ten Commandments dealt with coveting, which is in its essence lusting after what other people have. Wanting them, looking at over the fence, seeing what our neighbor has and wanting that. And getting consumed with it. Lust is worshiping things instead of worshiping the God who made those things. We have a desire for things and money and success and power. And, and really there's a misguided worship that we can get involved in. Where we're worshiping things instead of the God who made the things and made us. We can only enjoy the things in this life when we're worshiping God and we're using the stuff, right? And so our hearts get pulled in the wrong direction. And at times we just need to stop and examine and look for a minute where we're at. He calls these people adulterers. We know that adulterers and adult, commit adultery is to go outside of a marriage, right? To have a relationship outside of a marriage, that's adultery. And he's saying to these people, you have, you're cheating on God. Your heart is gone for the things in this world. You're lusting after stuff. You're pursuing those things. You're fighting with other people because you want this stuff so bad. And yet you're cheating on God. 
And he's like, listen, the scriptures say this, that God created you with a spirit that's meant to connect to him, that's supposed to be worshiping him, in love with him. And yet we can take that spirit and we can pursue stuff. We can fall in love with things. And so how do we win this battle? Well, the one-sided fight I got to in, uh, in, at Cajon High School, you know, I didn't win that fight, partly because I didn't fight back, right? And if I was going to win that fight, I would have had to fight back. That's the only way to win that fight. But some fights, so some fights are won by fighting back, but this fight is won by surrendering. It's surrendering to God. The only answer to winning this battle over the stuff in this world, over the material world, and the pull that it has on us is to surrender to God. And when we surrender to God, then he moves in us and we're able to transfer our affections from the things in this world to him. And so it's only through surrender that we can win. I found a version this week. I couldn't find what version it was because this was in a commentary, which is just a book that somebody else has written about the scripture. But he quoted the scripture in it. So I loved this translation, though I can't tell you which version it's from. But the translation of, um, of verse 7 goes this way. He says, so enlist under God. Fight the devil and he will flee from you. Enlist under God. We all recognize there's evil influences in the world. Again, if you're here, it's because you have a fear of God. You have a desire to see good happen in the world, in your life, in your family, in your business, right? Wherever you're at. And yet we know there's evil in the world. We see it happening. And uh, the more uh, you know the scriptures and the more you know God, the more you become aware of the spiritual battle we're in as a country and as a world. You see the uh, effects of that battle. You hear people actually talk about that spiritual battle in biblical language. The problem is our culture knows less and less the, about the Bible. And so people don't know when uh, the, the, you know, the verbiage being used in the world today in our country is biblical. Um, it's crazy. But but this is the nature of the world. We're in this battle. And so we can't be a force against that evil if we're not enlisted under God and we're following him. And so James just says, stop being double-minded. Stop trying to do both. It's like you're trying to live in the world and play that game. And yet you're also trying to belong to God. And he's like, you're not going to be a factor in the spiritual battle against evil if you're doing both things. And so this call is to make a decision to enlist under God. Then you can start to fight the devil. You can be a force against the evil that's going on in our world. You know, I've recognized something recently, and I actually heard another pastor kind of describe this. When he said it, I thought, man, that is, that's what's going on. And so um, I just want to reveal it to you for a minute if you haven't discovered it already. You know, American culture... You know, it's not that America's necessarily been a, a country full of Christians all the time. But America was founded on some Christian values, if you will, some ideals, maybe some morality. And it certainly was established with this idea that God actually has for his people, which is a, 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 a concept of freedom. And so um, it used to be, and in some ways it still is, but it used to be, that probably the number one value that every American had, anybody that came to this country valued it, it was part of the reason you came here. If your family immigrated here, it was part of the reason. And that was our highest value was freedom. 
freedom of religion. We know that was a big deal in the origins and founders of our country. But freedom to make your own decisions and govern your own life. It wasn't freedom to do whatever you want, okay? Because that doesn't work. And so, yes, there, we had to still have laws and govern behavior, but there was a freedom um, that, we would, that we value, and we valued as a culture. But right now, we're in the middle of a, of a cultural war to change that value from freedom that we all hold, hold in common to value sexual orientation and sexual identity as the highest value. And that's the battle we're in. And so that's why there's a move to encourage every person to identify their gender, to identify their sexual orientation, and to their attraction, right? You, look, you talk to young people today, that is what is permeated our culture. That's how you're supposed to see yourself. And there's an attempt to raise the value and to unite us under that banner. It's incredible, the spiritual battle that we are in. Um, and it's been going on for some time. I actually think the, what sparked it all was um, the sexual revolution in the 60s and that idea that we're not going to live under these restrictions and this stuff that is old-fashioned, it comes out of the Bible. No, we want freedom. And so under the guise of freedom, our culture has pursued really promiscuity and really what ultimately I think has created a monster of destruction in our culture. What we're doing right now isn't helping our kids and yet that's the intention, that's the belief that a lot of people have. And so um, this spiritual battle is a result of a misunderstanding of the nature of one thing, and that's sex. And I'm sorry, this is, I'll keep this PG, okay? But, um, but I've got to address it because it's a big issue and all of our kids are dealing with it too because it's the nature of the world we're in right now, right? And so I don't love talking about this stuff, but I got to because it's relevant to what we're dealing with. And so what I recognize is this, that back in the day, uh, like in the, uh, probably around 2001, um, I was in McCook as a youth pastor. And the state of Nebraska was actually funding um, an abstinence education program where I was able to go into the schools and teach on uh, sexual behavior with a bent towards waiting for sex until marriage. It's crazy. But I was able to do it. And we taught it, not necessarily here's what the Bible says, but from the actual realities of what sex can do and where it can cause damage, or it can be a wonderful thing. And the truth is that as we've studied this, the evidence shows that healthy relationships are ones where sex has been waited for, and it happens inside of a committed relationship, which is marriage, which is what God says, right? So it's actually the healthiest for people, and then sex actually has the power to bond that couple together. And it, 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 that's what it's meant to be in part. And so um, what we would teach is the, the power that sex has, but when it's misused or it's, it's in the wrong context, it can actually be harmful. And one of the illustrations we used is the illustration of fire. And so um, here's the reality that, you know, I have a fireplace, kind of a wood, in, uh, a stove insert at home, and, and starting a fire in there on a cold evening is just a wonderful thing. I mean, that, that thing warms up, heats up, it's got a blower on it, and I can crank that room up to like 80 degrees, you know? It feels so good on a cold, you know, when the temperature's 20 below. It's a wonderful thing. But if you take that same fire and put it down here in the wildcats, in the, in the trees, or you take that same fire and put it up in Sioux County and um, out in a field, guess what that fire does? All of a sudden, it's not a cool thing anymore. It's not a good thing. It's dangerous and it's destructive. 
The reality is that the pull of the world towards the material world is a strong pull. And in our world, that pull is going to constantly be in front of us. James encourages us that we must have a posture towards him, towards life, towards God, where we are fighting against that pull, we're resisting it. And he says the posture we should take is one of repentance, where we never accept the presence of that evil, that sin in our lives, where we recognize it's there and we are aware of it. And we recognize we're not always going to win that battle, but we are, we are not accepting defeat either. We're not just allowing it in. Part of it is to just understand the danger involved in stepping in a trap of sin and allowing it to stay in our lives and what's going to happen if we do that. There's going to be destruction and death that's going to be brought into our lives by sin. That's always what it produces. And so we've got to be aware of that. And sometimes just acknowledging that, you know. Our culture tries to tell us that things aren't bad. No, 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 you, 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 you should have lots of sex before you get married. No, no, no. See, that's the message we hear in the world. You're, how are you going to be married? How are you going to know you can, well, you're compatible if you don't do that? And so these lies are powerful. They sound good. They're tempting to believe. And yet God says the opposite, right? And so part of it is just agreeing with him and understanding that if I step in that trap, I'm headed down the wrong road. Um, there was a family that visited Niagara Falls years ago, and they're watching the water roll over the falls. And if you've never been there, man, it's one of those amazing things. I got to go as a, as a kid, and I'll never forget it. It was, it was amazing visual. It's a huge um, uh, waterfall. But anyway, they were there in the spring, and so there's ice breaking up in the river, and these huge ice chunks are going over the falls, which would be incredible to see too. But um, there was a weird thing going on they started to notice is that these gulls, seagulls or whatever, were landing on those ice chunks and they were like pecking at the ice as they headed towards the falls. And they started to realize that there were fish frozen in the ice. And so these gulls are landing on these chunks of ice and they're pecking at the ice trying to get the fish out. And so they're getting this meal. Well, as the ice would get towards the edge of the falls, those gulls would take off and fly, you know, otherwise they'd go over the edge. So they're watching this go on. Well, all of a sudden he noticed, the dad noticed this one gull on this one chunk of ice, picking at the ice, but he wasn't taken off. And he went, he stayed on the ice longer than the other birds were. And all of a sudden he's like, what is going on? And so he looks at the ice and he realizes it's trying to take off. But it had stayed on the ice chunk too long, and its feet had frozen to the ice. And so as that ice chunk hit the falls and went over, the bird went with it. That's kind of what happens to us with sin. We're drawn to sin for a reason. Because God has created us with desires and urges and things that we want whether it's the things that someone else has, whether it's the things in the world, success, power, whatever. And we're drawn to it and we go after it, but what we don't realize sometimes is what's gonna happen is we're gonna be trapped by it. And again, it always leads to destruction. And so if you are trying to follow God, now you're in a battle. <laughs> you've entered the battle, right? You're a long ways from winning, but you've entered the battle. And so now you get to be a part of that. I'm going to resist the pull of the world. I'm going to fight against it. I'm going to try to honor God, and I'm going to stay focused on God, and I'm going to try to see him work in my life, right? This colossal battle that goes on. And you'll find over time that you'll realize something that maybe as a new Christian, some people really are hopeful that all the temptation, all the desire for things that are bad will just go away. 
God will just take them away. Um, but if you are after God and you pursue him for any length of time, you begin to realize that's not what happens. <laughs> um, because you have a sin nature that stays in you and a desire for things remains. And so you have to stay focused on God. You have to grow in your love for God. You have to put yourself constantly in God's word and around God's influence so that you are able to stand against the attacks of the enemy. I've watched people step into a leadership role or step into a position, get married, like, hey, we want to do this right, we want to honor God. And then they start getting attacked. And so the reality is we have a spiritual battle we're in. And so um, if you follow Jesus and you live for him, I'm going to tell you, you'll realize sometimes uh, we call them sin patterns. There's like a particular struggle that you have and you, you wish it would go away and you pray that it would go away, but it doesn't go away. The struggle remains. The, the draw to that particular thing remains. And sometimes, honestly, it can be a generational thing. It can be something that maybe someone in your family struggled with and it kind of got handed down to you because they didn't break that chain of bondage, right, or struggle. And so it gets passed on to you. Now you get to try to fight with it and wrestle with it. Sometimes based on our personalities, again, we're born into a sinful world. We have flaws. You know, sometimes our psyche, we have issues um, with our emotional issues or, or psychological issues that we struggle with. All of a sudden, we have a, a propensity towards depression or anxiety or whatever, and that puts us in a position where we're struggling with sin. Sometimes it just might be that we like stuff. We just enjoy it, you know. And so that battle is a real one, and part of it is becoming aware, again, of what God says what the truth is, what the best thing for us is, and then beginning to be influenced by God more than we are, we are by the world. We had our, um, a conference here this week for our denomination, the Brian Fellowship, and a lot of pastors here and leaders. And we had um, a speaker who is from Lincoln. He works for an organization called Back to the Bible, and they used to do a lot on the radio. I used to listen to them back in the day when I was spending a lot of hours in a tractor, and I listened to these sermons. Great content, real encouraging. But now they've kind of shifted direction, and they're more focused online, and they're trying to engage a younger audience. And so they've shifted, but the guy that was teaching um, was uh, uh, teaching us, and he revealed that the Back to the Bible has a kind of a, um, a parent company, if you will. It's an organization that studies people's interaction with the Bible. And I think it was called like the um, Institute for, for Biblical um, Interaction or something like that. It had a fancy name, I can't remember. But, but anyway, it was cool. He was sharing with us some statistics that they've discovered. One of the things they've discovered is that people who will interact with the Bible, read the Bible, four times a week. Their interaction with pornography, alcohol, temper issues, they all drop dramatically, like almost down to non-existent. But people that only interact with the Bible three times, or not at all, they look about the same. And it's really an interesting, uh, and reinforces the truth, that if we're going to win this battle, it's all about who's influencing us. And we live in a world that's going to pull us all the time, constantly, in its direction. And the devil is the prince of the power of the air. And he is constantly working to pull you away from God. Are you in the battle and are you working? Are you, are you showing up to spend the time with God and allow him to influence you more? Well, James also tells us that if we're going to win this battle, we need to pick up things like humility. Pride will keep us from God, but humility will bring us to him. God opposes the proud, but gives grace 
to the humble. And so acknowledging our shortcomings and our struggles and being transparent and being humble about it will help us win the victory. Developing good motives. Again, when our motives are like we talked about last week, selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and things like that, then we're susceptible to giving in to the pull of the world. And then, of course, he talks about repentance and being willing to confess, agree with God, and then turn away from those things. And so this is the challenge of the first 10 verses. Resist the pull of the material world, and this is something that a follower of Jesus is going to be engaged in. The second pull that we need to resist if we're going to have a a faith that isn't dead, a faith that's alive and active and growing, is we're going to resist the pull of the critical spiritual spirit. If the last one didn't challenge you, this one might. The critical spiritual spirit. Let's read verses 11 through 12. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Now, we live in a culture that's all against judgment. You know, don't be a hater. Don't judge me, right? Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've said it. Usually that has to do with don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong, okay? Uh, Guess what? We don't really have a lot of options on what right and wrong is. We have a Bible that God's given us that doesn't change. Right and wrong really doesn't change, right? And so uh, we have that moral guidance from God, fortunately. So we know what right and wrong is. We know what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. What a gift. If we didn't know that, we'd walk constantly into things that are going to destroy us. And so thank God that he's given us that guidance. But we're not talking about that kind of judgment, judging what is right and wrong. We're talking about our view of others. And James is saying, when you start to take your Christianity, your walk with God, and you start to look across the fence to the other pew or aisle or other chair, and you start to think, those people, are they really even Christians? I know they claim to follow God, but I know what they do. We start to look around and look at other people as being unspiritual, immature, and we would never say this, but they're kind of beneath us, right? That's what James is talking about. Judging other followers of Jesus and making a decision about where they really stand. And it always is beneath where we're at. This can lead to this critical way of thinking can lead to an I'm the only one mindset that I think of. And uh, I've certainly been there before. I'm the only one. There's an example of this in the Bible in uh, 1 Kings. And we're told about a prophet of God named Elijah. Elijah was a powerful man of God. He lived in a time where Israel was being influenced towards the the God called Baal or Baal. See, uh, Israel's king Ahab had married a woman named Jezebel, and Jezebel worshipped Baal. And she brought Baal worship into Israel. 
And she brought prophets of Baal into Israel to influence the people to worship Baal. And of course, Baal was a demonic god, a false god, and led the people of Israel into sexual immorality, into uh, blood worship, into sacrificing their children, abhorrent things. And so Elijah was furious about this influence. And so he took it on. He became angry. He became uh, uh, confrontational. He challenged these prophets of Baal to a spiritual battle. Top of Mount Carmel at high noon, he said, right? Show up and we're going to see who the real God is. And so they built two altars and they put animals on them as a sacrifice. And Elijah said, let's call down fire from heaven. We'll see who the real God is. (laughs) This guy had some intestinal fortitude, right? He has some courage. And so he stands up and the prophets of Baal gave them most of the day to try to get fire from heaven. He taunted them. Oh, maybe Baal's on the on the, you know, in the bathroom. <laughs> Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's out doing something. He's not listening. And they were going crazy and they're cutting themselves and doing the stuff that they would do. No fire. Then Elijah steps up. He calls fire from heaven. God, you're the real God. And God answers him. And that, that altar, that sacrifice on the altar is consumed. I mean, fire from heaven. Hello. That's power. And then he goes after those prophets. He kills all 400 of them. And then Jezebel puts out a hit on his head, a price on his head. And he gets scared. (laughs) And he runs into the desert and hides in a cave. And God comes to him and says, Elijah, what are you doing? I just sent fire from heaven. You just killed the 400 prophets of Baal. Pretty big victories. And now you're out here hiding, scared and afraid. And Elijah said, I'm the only one. First Kings 19, verse 18, God lets him in on the truth. Yet I will preserve, God said, 7,000 others in Israel who've never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. I've reminded myself of this at times. You might think you're the only one. You're the only one trying. You're the only one trying to honor God, live for God. You got somebody that you love, you know, in your family, you work with, whatever, that's in opposition, always fighting against you. God, I'm the only one. And to those people and to myself, I remind myself of this principle that Elijah experienced, and that is that God is at work and people around you in ways you don't know. And our job is not to criticize and become critical of the people around us. It's to focus on God and to remember that he's at work. Remember that a critical spirit is not from the Holy Spirit and it's not part of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, It's not. It's not from God in any way. It is an attitude that comes from legalistic, critical spiritual competition. It's this idea that somehow I've got to view other people as less than me so that I get ahead and I feel better about where I'm at. And it's usually, in my experience, as I look in my own heart, it's a result of immaturity, a lack of growth in my own life, maybe just um, misplaced competition. Maybe I have wounds and hurts that haven't healed. And so um, there's issues there. Maybe it's just fatigue. I think for Elijah, a lot of it was, he just went through a massive battle and he was wiped out and discouraged. Whatever the case, when we start to recognize that we're becoming critical of everyone and we've got an attitude, we need to stop 
and acknowledge the problem probably isn't in everybody else. Probably something in me that's going on. Um, If you've been married more than six months, you can probably create a list of problems that your spouse has, issues in their life, right, that are irritating. And when you get up to like 32 years that I'm at, my spouse has a long list, maybe a book, <laughs> right, uh, of shortcomings and problems and issues in my life. I might be able to come up with a page full of stuff for her even. I mean, she's pretty good, but you know what I mean? Like we can focus on what's wrong. And that's really the problem. A critical spirit, again, is not the right attitude, not the right approach. It creates conflict in our marriages. It creates conflict in our classrooms. A lot of times we get this idea, hang in with me, we get this idea that our kids are pretty close to perfect and they would never do what the teacher's saying they're doing, right? What's the problem? We get defensive and, now listen, teachers and people that work in school aren't perfect either, but neither are our kids, right? We can get critical of everything and everybody and that's not good. We need to be people that are bringing encouragement into the places that we're at. How about in our businesses? We can start thinking no one else is trying, no one else is showing up, no one's is doing their job. Man, that next generation that just need to grow up, you know. How about being a servant? How about being an encourager? How about investing? There's always a different perspective we can take. And James is saying, don't get that critical, judgmental, competitive thing where you're judging other believers and other people based on what you think they're doing and how you're viewing. We don't know what other people's hearts are like. We really don't know what's in there. And we need to be careful of pretending that we do know. F.B. Meyer said this of people that are struggling with sin. He said, when we see a brother or sister in sin, there are two things that we don't know. First of all, we don't know how hard he or she tried not to sin. Second, we don't know the power of the forces that they're up against, that are pulling them. We also don't know what we would have done if we were in the same situation. Well, the last pull that we see in this passage, the last few verses, that we need to resist is we need to resist the pull of over-self-confidence. Let's read verses 13 through 17. James says, look here, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town. We'll stay there a year. We'll do business there and we'll make a profit. Verse 14, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. What you ought to say is this. If the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Sometimes the greatest challenge in life is to succeed. It's to be able to do what we want to do. And we start to think that we're doing it on our own. And we begin to get puffed up and prideful. And James is addressing that particular pole of the world. The pull of the world is for us to get over self-confident. Now we need to have confidence. 
We need to have a sense of certainty that God's made us to do certain things and not to get deterred by the first thing that doesn't work or the first difficulty. You're not gonna make it very far in life if you're not resilient, if you won't keep going when you get knocked down. You're not gonna make it very far. So yeah, we've gotta have some confidence, but over self-confidence is the problem here. James is like, you're, you're starting to think you, you, you can do anything. Oh yeah, we're gonna go make a million bucks. Oh, we're gonna start, the, oh, we're gonna do that. Listen, if you have the ability to make money, to generate jobs and income, to create things that work in terms of business, and man, what a gift, what a gift. Most of our culture relies on those people and some of you in here are able to do that. We rely on you to create jobs and to generate movement. Man, praise God for you, what a blessing that is. But you gotta be careful careful of getting overconfident. Some people struggle with insecurity. Some people struggle with over self-confidence. Both of them are wrong. I remember the first time I saw a man represent what James is talking about here and really live it out. I was in college and I was, um, we had a speaker come to our college and he was a camp director. It was a large camp, very successful camp. And since then, and under his leadership, it's grown to multiple locations. And I mean, just a huge, Thousands and tens of thousands of people come through these camps every year and are ministered to. But his name was Dick Angelo, and he was telling us about the vision for the camp. And I just remember him saying this very simple, very simple phrase. He said, here's what we plan to do if it's God's will. If it's God's will, this is the direction we're going. Very humble, very um, willing to walk under God's authority. Pride pushes people away, Right? Pride pushes people away. I know a lot of people that get to the end of life and they've succeeded in the world. They have money and business and all that they could want, but they have no family. They have no real relationships. They have nobody really loves them. That's the trap of the pull of the world in this regard. The resistance or resistance to this is to recognize it's dangerous. It's even demonic to get overconfident. Nobody likes somebody who's boasting and bragging all the time. There was uh, um, back in uh, the 70s when import cars were kind of just coming in and, and uh, a few people were buying them and man, they got really good gas mileage compared to those gas guzzling American made cars, right? And so uh, there was one guy in this uh, workplace and he had an import and every day came in, he's bragging about the gas mileage he got to all his coworkers and they got so tired of hearing it. They, uh, they kind of came up with a plan to mess with him a little bit. And so every day during the middle of the day, one of them would go out and dump a gallon of gas in his gas tank. And so it wasn't enough to move the needle, but, and he started going, man, I'm getting 90, I got 90 miles to the gallon, you guys. Like he'd come into work and he just, and of course nobody believed him and he got really frustrated. And then of course it really messed with him when they quit doing it. And all of a sudden his car went down to, listen, uh, bragging and boasting it only makes us vulnerable. It doesn't make us, those aren't good traits. They're not positives. And a lot of times in our world, we value people who are overconfident in that, oh man, they can do anything and they beat their chest and they say how great they are. Those aren't good traits. James is warning us against that. Stay humble. Stay humble before God. The things that matter in this life will come to you through humility. You'll get to enjoy the things that really matter. You'll get to enjoy relationship with God if you stay humble. If you don't, God's in opposition to you. He's gonna stop and thwart the things you're trying to do because your heart's gone off in the wrong direction. 
So stay humble before him. Resist the pull of the world. Don't fall in love with stuff. Can I just promise you that stuff will never really fulfill you? It can't love you back. God cares about you. He loves you. Draw close to him and you'll find your life is more fulfilled. You'll find that you're enjoying life a lot more when you're right with God. Don't get a critical, judgmental spirit. Don't let yourself get in that place where you think you're better than everybody else and everybody else is, is not doing it right and you're the only one. Remember to be humble in success. Give God the credit for the wins. Don't take the failures too seriously, right? Life is a lot, about a lot more than that. My prayer for you is that you are engaged. You're signed up under God and you're fighting against evil in our world. That's where we need to be. I pray we continue to do that. God, thanks for challenging us. Thank you for this um, powerful chapter that is a reminder of the traps that we can get caught in and the pull that the world has in our lives. And I pray you'd help each person here to continue to surrender to you, to continue to lay down their pride, walk in humility, stay sensitive to those areas of sin and those traps that the devil wants to lay for us, to believe you and to listen to you. God, continue to form us and really transform us so that we're, we're factors in the battle against good and evil. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.